Well, good afternoon and welcome to the first event of uh, the new uh, academic year uh, here at the JFK Forum. I'm delighted to see such a big crowd up through to the, to the rafters, which I think speaks well for both the topic and our panelists today. I'm David Sanger. I'm the National Security Correspondent for the New York Times, but uh, more importantly, a, a graduate of the college and a senior fellow here at the Belfer Center and a, a, a lecturer for a Kennedy School and Government Department course. And I am uh, delighted today to be uh, joined uh, to my immediate left, your, your right, by uh, Nick Burns, who's the director of the Future of Diplomacy uh, Project and a professor here, professor of practice at the uh, Kennedy School. Uh, when uh, I first knew Nick, he was what, ambassador to Greece. Uh, he was undersecretary of state for policy, a job that comes with a great name. You're known as P, sort of the way you're known as Q in the James Bond movies. Um, and uh, Nick did much of the early diplomacy uh, with Iran and uh, uh, a lot of the setup of sanctions that ultimately led to the uh, agreement you saw in the, in the Obama administration. Um, Matt Bunn, uh, sitting um, immediately to Nick's left, is a professor of practice and the co-principal investigator for the project on managing the atom and probably the go-to voice at the Kennedy School, Harvard, and around the world on proliferation issues. You frequently read him quoted on these and has written extensively on them. And uh, Will Toby is a senior fellow at the Belfer Center, uh, worked in the uh, energy department, uh, running uh, a good deal of the uh, National Nuclear Security Administration, uh, and uh, working on proliferation issues uh, throughout uh, the Bush administration. So I am delighted to have all of you here. Um, the Iran agreement, uh, and the vote that will have to take place in Congress in just the next uh, few uh, week, and I guess the next week and a half, is probably one of the most consequential votes that you will see Congress take uh, in, for the past few years, and probably during the Obama administration, only matched by the vote on health care, the Obamacare um, vote. Uh, it's an extremely difficult vote for um, many Democrats. I think. Almost all Republicans have lined up uh, against this deal. But we know today, uh, with the announcements by a few senators, that the political drama has sort of been bled a little bit out of this, because President Obama will have the votes to uh, assure that he can get the deal through, even though a majority of Congress will vote against it. And you say, how is that possible? And the answer is that a deal was struck prior to the negotiation of the Iran Accord, on, which was announced on July uh, 14th um, in Vienna, after weeks of, of sort of last minute diplomacy. A deal was struck that basically means that Congress can try to pass a resolution of disapproval that will pass in the House. In the Senate, it probably will not pass only because there are enough Democrats who've come out in favor of the deal now that they can block the uh, further uh, closing of debate. So it's very possible the Senate will never actually end up voting on it. If they do vote on it, President Obama could then veto it, and he would have enough votes together to make sure that the veto was not overridden. 
But this is, in Washington parlance, called winning ugly, which is to say you're winning with a minority of votes rather than with a majority. And we'll return to that topic uh, in the midst of this discussion. Our plan for the evening is to hold a conversation uh, for a little more than half an hour and then open the discussion up to all of you. And we look forward to your uh, comments. Uh, there are um, uh, microphones uh, down here. So when we get closer to that moment, you might want to begin to line up uh, there. Um, let me start uh, first with you, Will, because um, you've been a pretty outspoken critic of this deal. The deal, as you know, puts fairly strict limits on Iran if they comply for the first 10 to 15 years. But then many, not all, of those provisions expire and the Iranians can begin producing centrifuges again, those machines that enrich uranium. They can begin to work on developing advanced centrifuges. They can do a number of the other steps that people wanted to stop. And one of the main critiques that uh, has been made of the deal is that it's very strong for 15 years and then weakens. So my question to you is, having read all 156 pages of this, as I'm sure everybody in the audience has, um, <laughs> do you think that 10 years from now, within the period of time that Iran's under restrictions, Iran would cheat and gain a capability? And do you think in 20 years from now, Iran could gain a capability to build a weapon even without cheating? Well, thank you, David. Um, I have three concerns about the deal. The first two apply to that earlier period that you were speaking to and the third mainly to the later period. The first is that, unfortunately, it seems to be built on a false foundation. The way the inspections process and the verification process works is a country's obligated to make a complete and correct declaration, which the IAEA then verifies. Um, unfortunately, the IAEA has found that Iran has undertaken 12 sets of activities related to possible military dimensions of its program and has been unwilling so far to clarify these. Oli Hanonen, our colleague here, has said, you can proceed without doing that, but you're taking, quote, a heck of a risk. The second concern I have during the first 10-year period is that the deal may already be eroding. Even after the deal was concluded, the Iran's defense minister, foreign minister, and two leading advisors to the supreme leader have all denied that there would be IAEA access to so-called military sites. If those sites are off limit, it creates a huge gap in the verification process. And then the third concern I have is that, as you allude to, in 10 to 15 years, many of the central restrictions on numbers of centrifuges and amounts of material will peel off. And Secretary Kerry has, I think, appropriately said that it's not really acceptable for Iran to be two months away from a nuclear weapon today. So my question is, why is it acceptable in 10 to 15 years? Let me just pursue one uh, element of this. The first thing that you mentioned, which is that the IEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, had a series of 12 questions about possible military dimensions. 
initially the administration's position was Iran would have to fess up to everything that it did. Its later position, as it got closer to a deal, and I was out in Vienna for this, for, for negotiations, Secretary Kerry gathered many of us and he said, look, it's up to the IAEA to decide how much they concede about the past. I'm worried about the future. I can't redo the past. I need a deal that's all about, and I'm not gonna let the past get in the way of the future. So how critical is it that Iran be forced to fess up, particularly when that's gonna be politically very, very difficult for them since they've insisted all along that there never was a weapons program? This issue is important because of the future, not the past. Unless there's a full understanding of who did what and where and when, then there can't be a baseline for uh, effective verification. And we won't know that this activity has ceased, and we won't know that it won't recur. Unless the, in, the people are known and the programs are known, we can't be sure that it's rooted out. So Nick, let me turn to you. You've been a, a very vocal proponent uh, of the deal. Um, but that said, I know you share some of the same concerns you've heard Will express here about what could happen. And whether you agreed with Will's critique or not, you have to design these diplomatically on the assumption that Iran's going to try to cheat and you need to have a way of dealing with it and to deal with the power they would get from this. So what would, let's assume for a minute that all of the worst scenarios Will's laid out here come to pass. What would you do to contain Iran's power if they did cheat? Thank you, David. And let me just um, take the opportunity of your question and just very briefly say I support the deal because I think it is the best way to deal, to contain Iranian power in the short and long term. And I think this deal will effectively freeze Iranian, Iran's nuclear efforts for the next 10 to 15 years. That's a substantial compromise on the part of the government of, of Iran. They will, they will effectively shut down or limit severely both their uranium and plutonium processes for the next 10 to 15 years. That is in our, to our advantage. Right now the US government is saying publicly, as everybody knows, that Iran may be two to three months away from a nuclear capacity. With this deal, they'll be a year away, so it'll give us time to react, the next administration time to react. And the third reason, David, is because we can accomplish this through diplomacy and not war. We're just coming out of two big land wars in the Middle East. I believe we should use force if necessary to deter Iran from becoming nuclear weapons capable, but they're not there right now. And if we can accomplish this through peaceful negotiated means, we're better off. And as Secretary Powell said when he endorsed the deal on Meet the Press on Sunday, and I very much agree with him, we haven't given up any of our options. Should Iran violate the deal along any part of the continuum, for the next 20 years or so, we're always going to be stronger militarily. We'll always have that ability to impose our will, if you will, on the Iranians through the threat or the use of military force. And I think we'd be able, in the event of a major Iranian uh, violation of the agreement, we'd be able to reassemble a sanctions coalition against them. So we don't really give up our ability to deal with this problem through other means. But I think that, David, you're right to ask the question and Will's right to say the weakness of the deal and I've testified four times before Congress and said each time, I think this is a good deal, but there are benefits and risks. And the big risk is that at about year 15, most of these restrictions 
on the Iranian program begin to lapse. So the Iranians could reconstitute a civil nuclear program and they could possibly use that as a cover to develop a covert nuclear weapons program. We have to mitigate against that risk. So I've been advocating, as have many others, that in effect we need to implement the Iran deal, but we also need to implement a policy to contain Iranian power. And so I think President Obama should be more clear than he has been about his determination that he will use military force if there's a fundamental Iranian violation of this agreement and if they drive towards a nuclear weapon. And I would expect President Obama's successor and that person, his or hers successors, successor, the next two presidents who will have to deal with this to be similarly tough-minded. It also means uh, that we ought to build up the power of the Gulf states to, in essence, protect themselves against their great adversary, Iran. Secretary Kerry's done a very good job of that. It means we should expedite our military assistance agreement with Israel. I negotiated the last agreement. It was a $30 billion agreement negotiated in 2007 over 10 years. So we're two years away from that agreement being renegotiated. Wouldn't it be a good signal to Iran if President Obama announced the new agreement this autumn? And wouldn't it be good if President Obama went to Jerusalem and Tel Aviv and met with the Israeli leadership and stood by them as a signal to the Iranians that we'll stand by Israel we have to do all this to contain Iran's nuclear ambitions, but also, and this is my final point, Iran is making a big push into the heart of the Sunni world right now in Lebanon, in Gaza, in Iraq, in Yemen, and especially in Syria. And they've unnerved all of the Arab states, the Sunni Arab states. We need to, in effect, work with those states in Turkey to push the Iranians back. So both in conventional terms and nuclear terms, a containment regime, I don't think the Iranian regime can be trusted in either a nuclear or conventional sense. Nick, let me just uh, press you on one part of that. If the Iranians comply with the early parts of this agreement, they get sanctions relief. And there's argument about whether that sanctions relief is $100 billion or $150 billion. Or $56 billion. Or $56 billion. And, you know, Everybody who's got a different position on this has a different set of numbers. Um, whatever that number is, it's big. It involves money, oil money that's been frozen over the years that the Iranians have uh, parked in banks around the world. And one of the big fears is once that money begins to flow, it's going to flow to the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. It'll flow to propping up President Assad in Syria with all the atrocities happening there. It'll flow to Hezbollah. It will flow to the Iranian uh, military to work on cyber weapons. There are all kinds of scenarios of what could happen to it. There's not a whole lot you can do to prevent where that money goes. So tell me how you address that under what you were thinking. Along with the problems that arise 15 years from now, for me it's the other significant risk here. This was a negotiated agreement. So we got a lot. I think, we got, I think the benefits outweigh the risk, but we had to give up something. In this case, I think it's reasonable to assume that when the 56 billion or more goes into the Iranian central bank coffers, some of it's going to go to try to resuscitate a, an economy that's, that's been badly hurt by the sanctions and by the falling uh, price of oil in the world market because the Iranian government has to be responsive to, to their own people. But clearly, some of it will go to the Revolutionary Guard. Qasem Soleimani, the head of the Revolutionary Guard, 
is in a very strong bureaucratic position in Tehran. He's closely aligned to the supreme leader, Ali Hamanai, and Hamanai has been, in effect, supporting the strategic direction of the Revolutionary Guards. So, so this is a real problem for the United States. It's a problem for Israel. It's a problem for the Sunni Arab states. And I think the way to um, deal with this problem is through the measures that I, that I said, I don't see Iran as a partner of the United States. Now potentially it could be if they change their policies, their actions in the Middle East. As long as they're the kingmaker for Assad, as long as they're running guns to Hezbollah, as long as they're running guns and financing the Houthi rebels, and as long as they're effectively they've become the greatest power in southern Iraq that includes Baghdad and, Bas and, and Basra, and they're shepherding these Shia militant groups to be a divisive force in Iraqi politics, we've got to push back. And it means a very tough-minded containment policy of the type that President Obama hasn't put together yet. One of the things that struck me in conversations with members of Congress over the last two months, in July and August, is the number of times both Republicans and Democrats would say in private, I'm willing to vote for it or not, but this deal would make more sense to me if it was embedded in a larger strategy for the Middle East by the Obama administration. That's what's been lacking. So I support President Obama on the nuclear deal, but I think that he needs to articulate a comprehensive American strategy where we're going to support our friends and allies, Israel and the moderate Arab states in the Middle East, against Iran, as long as Iran is the largest troublemaker and the most violent actor in the Middle East. And that's what Iran is right now. I hope Iran will change, but hope is not a policy, and you can't bank on that, and we're going to have to have a hard-headed approach until we see change. For all who want to see two different pictures of what that policy could look like, Former Vice President Cheney gave a speech at AEI this morning. It was not terribly complimentary of the deal. Uh, made, made Will's critiques of it look pretty mild, I would have to say. Uh, and he described one such, and tomorrow morning at Brookings, Secretary Clinton is going to describe why she's supporting the deal, but I think you'll also hear her describe a version of the containment policy that, that uh, Nick just described. Um, so Matt, let me ask you, when we first interviewed President Obama on the Iran issue, uh, a colleague of mine and I, in 2009, he was new to, the, new to office, he said to us that his biggest concern about Iran was that if it got a nuclear capability, it wouldn't be long before Saudi Arabia and the other Arab states got the same. As the deal got close, we heard Prince Turkey, the former Saudi intelligence uh, minister, uh, now retired, but who often speaks for the, for the Saudi royal family, say, whatever the Iranians get, we're going to build to. So as you look at the deal, does it make it more likely or less likely that we're headed to a nuclearized Middle East, where countries other than Israel, which is already believed to have 100 to 200 weapons, would attempt to gain at least a capability? I think overall it reduces the chance of a nuclear arms race in the Middle East because I think, especially in the near term but also to some degree in the long term, it reduces the probability that 10 years from now or 20 years from now we'll be facing an Iran with nuclear weapons. Uh, I think it undermines the arguments of Iranian nuclear weapons advocates 
because it makes it harder to get to the bulb without being found and stopped before you get there. It creates a flow of benefits, that many of which will go into the pockets of the most powerful people in Iran, and they won't want those cut off by ripping up the deal uh, and going for the bomb. And it greatly, having a deal with all of the world's major powers, greatly reduces the threat to Iran, the military threat, which is always the, a bomb advocate's best argument uh, for moving forward. So I think both in the near term and to a lesser degree, but still an important degree in the long term, it reduces the chance of an Iranian bomb. Now, what it does do is it essentially endorses uh, continued enrichment in Iran. And it will make it extremely difficult to say uh, to Saudi Arabia, to Egypt, to other leading countries, no, it's, it's acceptable for the Iranians to have enrichment, but it's unacceptable for you to have enrichment. Nonetheless, there's actually, I think we'll hear a lot of heat uh, about enrichment in those countries. I don't think we'll see a whole lot of action. There's not a lot of capability in those countries, and there's not a lot of countries lining up to sell enrichment technology to Saudi Arabia, to the other Gulf states, to Egypt, uh, or what have you. So I think this is something we're gonna have to be pushing on, working on uh, over a long period of time. But I think overall, the chance that we're gonna have some unstable nuclear arms race in the Middle East goes down, in my judgment, as a result of this deal. I wanted to respond in part to one uh, concern that Will has, and Will and I teach together. I'd actually like to disagree with your over-generous introduction of me. I think Will is at least as much the go-to person on proliferation <laughs> at the school as I am. We teach together uh, on that subject. Um, but Will's very concerned, and I think rightly, that the Iranians won't come clean on what they've done in the past. Iran did have, in my judgment, a real nuclear weapons program in the past. They were working on designing nuclear weapons. They repeatedly cheated on their IEEA safeguards agreement uh, in the past. Uh, that's the conclusion of US intelligence, but US intelligence also thinks that they stopped the part that was about actually designing nuclear weapons quite some time ago, back in 2003. Um, and uh, I think that the United States and uh, some of the other major powers, intelligence agencies know a lot about what was done and who did it uh, and um, have provided at least some of that information to the IEEA. I think it would help significantly the IEEA inspections if they did come clean, but I think we're in a pretty good position to understand what's going on in the future, even if the Iranians don't fully come clean. And I personally have zero expectation uh, that they're going to. Um, so, so let I, don't, me ask I don't think it's as bad a problem as Let Will's me ask you and uh, Will uh, both a, a sort of version of, of that question then. As you look at, at uh, Secretary of State Kerry's vow that we, the United States would cut off all pathways to a bomb for Iran, which means enriching uranium, means producing plutonium out of a reactor that is going to be redesigned in a reactor called Iraq, uh, in, um, and that would have a lot of its plutonium capabil producing capability removed from it. And the third being the covert means of slipping in, you know, buying something from the North Koreans or from a uh, former uh, uh, Soviet or group of scientists site. or a covert site. How, how do you rank how good a job this agreement did on those three pathways, uranium, plutonium, 
and the covert approach? I'd like to ask both of you. Well, why don't you start, uh, since I got the chance to start on that middle front. So um, on the overt sites, during the first 10 to 15 year period, I think the agreement actually does pretty well. Um, I actually think in some ways the, the strongest reason that Iran has not to cheat is that the agreement is so advantageous to it. It gets international blessing for its program and gets to get right up to the brink of a nuclear weapon in 10 to 15 years with international blessing. Unfortunately, though, on the covert programs, I think it's weaker. So there are, I believe, three principal ways you can get at the covert issue. You have the so-called on-site inspections or challenge inspections. Um, those have been controversial. I think to some extent that's a little bit of a, of a diversion. Um, I would return to the, the possible military dimensions. The way you can figure out whether or not these covert actions have been rooted out is to get to these people and get to these places and know what they did and where they did it. Uh, Matt is absolutely right that the US intelligence community um, concluded in, I think, 2007 that Iranian, Iran's organized nuclear weapons program had ceased. The problem is that the IAEA, in its report of uh, November 2011, um, concluded that these, some of these 12 activities may actually be ongoing. And it also has announced that it's um, accumulated additional evidence that tends to corroborate its earlier conclusions. One further point on this, the State Department itself on August 29th, 2014, announced additional sanctions on Iranian individuals and entities. And in that sanctions announcement, it accused an organization within Iran of ongoing nuclear weapons development work. My question to the State Department would be, when did you learn that ceased? So uh, I think it does uh, quite a good job, at, like Will, for the first 10 or 15 years. So on the enrichment side, um, for <laughs> the declared facilities, you have a rollback of two-thirds of Iran's centrifuges. They would eliminate 98% of the uh, stockpile of low-enriched uranium they've built up. The reason that's important is because enrichment is an exponentially accelerating process. So when you've enriched up to these low levels that they have now, you've actually done two-thirds of the work already. So getting rid of that stock means getting rid of a, what would otherwise be a two-thirds head start on making uh, bomb material. Uh, on the plutonium side, I think it's even better. Uh, the Iraq reactor will be so substantially modified that it can only produce something of the order of a kilogram of plutonium a year, and they're gonna send all the spent fuel from it out of the country anyway for the life of the reactor, and no reprocessing plant to take the plutonium out of that spent fuel uh, will be built in Iran. But on the covert uh, side, uh, there too, I'm more optimistic than Will. What you want to do, the, the key sort of lever you have is the nuclear material, and the facilities that you require to make nuclear material, it takes years to build and operate them. Uh, and you would need a supply of uranium. So the deal includes inspection of all of the uranium stocks, uranium mines, uranium mills, et cetera. You would need a supply of centrifuges. So the deal includes 
inspection of all of the centrifuges, the key centrifuge components. They have to buy equipment for their uh, authorized nuclear program through a verified procurement channel, get permission for each item, uh, and so on. So I think if you ask the intelligence community, who they are fundamentally the main line of defense against the covert site. The IAEA historically has never been the one to find the <coughs> covert site. It's been intelligence that's found it and then said to the IAEA, gee, you, you, maybe you ought to go look at such and such a place. Um, and uh, I think if you ask the intelligence community, they'd say this gives us at least a somewhat better uh, opportunity to find the covert site before it can produce enough material to be interesting. Uh, over the longer term, it's weaker. There's no doubt about it. As Will says, you know, in 15 years, it allows Iran to build as much enrichment as it wants to. So they could come right up to the edge of nuclear weapons. So I think the key thing we need to be starting to talk about now is not so much is it a good deal or a bad deal, but how are we going to implement it successfully? And what are we going to do to change circumstances so that it will be more okay with us over 10 or 15 years that they build up their enrichment capability than it is today? Um, because if our only option is to go straight to military strikes when they do something that we've authorized in this deal 15 years from now, that's not a very good uh, approach. Nick, you've um, been on the receiving end of intelligence estimates for much of your career when you were at the State Department. When you look at this deal and you look at the history that you know is behind it, um, do you believe that the United States would have a good chance of catching the Iranians if they were cheating? And do you believe if they found and caught them, that they could reassemble this extremely difficult to put together coalition that you worked on assembling at the end of the Bush administration and President Obama and Secretary Clinton worked on thereafter? Or do you think by the time that discovery got, gets made, people will be so economically invested in Iran that it would be very hard to get that back together? Good. Well, first of all, David, I'm going to very respectfully decline the opportunity to comment on the intelligence issue, because I have a <laughs> lifetime prohibition on that. Uh, what I will do is I will uh, quote Ernie Moniz. I think one of the people who has tremendous credibility on Capitol Hill is someone who was born and raised in the Fall River, went to Boston College, which is also my undergraduate college, and is our Secretary of Energy. He became one of the lead negotiators with Secretary Kerry, and I think if you go around Capitol Hill, they really trust him. He has said that he thinks, first of all, uh, for the life of the agreement, uh, we'll have a substantial ability to detect any untoward illegal activity at the known nuclear facilities. He's also said that if there's a covert site which is discovered, very difficult, I'm just quoting Secretary Moniz, very difficult, he believes, for the Iranians to cover that up or clean it up. These are microscopic nuclear materials. And he says he thinks that the United States and the international community that's with us will be able to detect Iranian activity. But the two gentlemen to my left would be far more informed on this issue than I would be. I would just say this, David. I think that we've got to have a very tough-minded attitude about um, calling the, calling the Iranians on every minor infraction. If you look at their past behavior, they lied about the Natanz facility until it was uncovered. They lied about the Fordow facility until President Obama and the British and French publicized it. 
a press conference you were probably at in 2009. So they have cheated in a flagrant way in the past. I think we have to expect they'll do that again. What people worry about is that they'll begin to cut corners and they'll cheat in small ways, thinking that the international community, especially the Perm Five, the godfathers of this deal, will not call them on it. I think we ought to be, call them on every minor infraction and establish a, uh, an expectation that if they deviate from the agreement, even in the most minor way, there's going to be a cost to them. It'll be up to the next American president or the man or woman after that to organize a sanctions coalition. I think if the infraction is minor, it's going to be very difficult, frankly, for the U.S. to um, reform a major coalition, another weakness of this deal. If the infraction, if, if the violation is a major violation, then I think we'll have a right to walk away from it. But sanctions reimposition will be important. And looking at the downside of the deal, there are two other compromises that were made very late in Vienna. One is that the uh, UN can ban on conventional arms transfers to Iran will disappear in five years, and the ballistic missile ban in eight years. Uh, I regret that those compromises had to be made. What it will mean is that the next president will have to, as soon as that UN ban, and we helped to negotiate one of those in 2007, and President Obama did another in 2011, as soon as they expire, the United States should reform a coalition to reimpose those restrictions on Iran and ditto with the ballistic missiles because we cannot trust the Iranians with more powerful weaponry given their track record of using those weapons. So before we open it up, let me just turn all of you to one other issue and it has to do really with how our democracy sort of operates here. Um, Matt, you made the point before we came out when we were chatting behind stage that no major arms control deal in American history and most of the previous ones were the US and the Soviets and then the US and Russia, had ever gone through without significant bipartisan support. It's possible that when the vote comes here in the next week or two, that not a single Republican vote will be cast for this deal. I'd say it's likely. Likely, yeah. There are one, a couple of Republicans we haven't heard from yet. Um, what's the implication of that? I think it's very damaging uh, for our democracy. And it, it, uh, I personally was uh, worried the moment the administration uh, reached this deal with the Congress to have this voting process, because I think everybody saw coming that there would be a majority opposition to this deal uh, in the House, and then it would limp forward after a presidential veto of a resolution of disapproval with everyone knowing that a majority of both houses of Congress was opposed to it. And uh, I think that the United States does better when, it, when our parties are able to work together. I mean, it's one reason why Will and I you know, work together so much. We publish together, we teach together. We're trying to demonstrate to the students how bipartisan cooperation is supposed to work. Um, uh, you know, we don't- You may be demonstrating an extinct breed out we, here. We, but you know, we, don't, we don't agree on everything. Uh, quite a few things, but there are quite a few things we can agree on and work together on. And I think that's really the mode that we need to get back to somehow on Capitol Hill. I don't have a good idea about how to get there. Will, do you think this deal would have less, will have less legitimacy and less enforceability 
if the world knows that while President Obama managed to get it through, he got it through essentially on a technicality, not on a majority vote. Uh, of course. I mean, it's, it's bad for the deal, and I agree with Matt, bad for the country, if the deal is essentially the product of a vote of disapproval in both houses of Congress. So Nick, you, you can win a fight on points, or you can win a fight on knockout. This would be on points. And a lot of great champions have won boxing matches on points in the past, in 12 or 15 round boxing matches. I must say, um, and I spent all of my career as a foreign service officer, so a civil servant, so I served both Republican okay. and Democratic administrations. I've been disappointed, maybe not shocked, but disappointed by the partisan nature of this debate. I, I think we as citizens uh, in, in the United States had a right to expect that on an issue of this gravity, this is a war and peace issue, potentially, the United States, members would vote their heads and they'd vote their conscience, they wouldn't vote just on strict party lines. But what we have is, with the possible exception of one United States Senator, all 301 Republicans in the House and Senate will likely vote against it. The only debate in Washington since June, July 14th has been on the Democratic Party. The members of that party have really anguished about this vote, but we haven't seen that on the other side. And we had preceding that an invitation to the Prime Minister of Israel to address a joint session of Congress in March, which was extremely <laughs> ill-advised. It was the first time in decades that an, uh, a, an official of another government, a head of state, had been invited to address our Congress in joint session without the agreement of the sitting president and the, and the minority, in this case, the minority party, and then to see, fifth, well, a great number of uh, 37, I think, Republican senators send an le open letter to the Iranian leadership in the spring, effectively saying, don't deal with President Obama because we're gonna defeat him on this issue. That degree of partisanship is destructive. And so what I would hope that when President Obama emerges victorious, and he will in eight to nine days from now, I really hope that the Republican members of the House and Senate will um, decide that we have gotta end this debate and everything's gonna depend on effective implementation of it, and that means American strength. I think after year 15, my final point, and I agree with Will and Matt on the dangers after year 15, it's all gonna depend on us. Will we be tough-minded enough to face down the Iranian government at that time and to reform coalitions if we have to? That'll depend on Americans acting together, which we have not done, unfortunately, in Congress over the last six weeks. David, could I address just a portion of what Nick said? I, I agree that the invitation and the letter were ill-advised. And I agree it's been a partisan debate, but I think it's been a partisan debate on a bipartisan basis. Um, the, yes. the administration, I think, maybe because of some of this, chose a 34-vote strategy. Um, the, the immediate response by the president in his Georgetown speech was that those who expressed doubt about the agreement favor war, and they're aligned with the hardest of the hardliners in Iran who have American blood on their hands. And that sort of accusation is one that drives the Republicans to unity. And so would it be fair to assume that there has been, shocking as this might be, overstatement on both sides out here, that the of president course. has said yeah. our course. only alternative yes. is war, and that uh, Mr. Cheney in his speech today uh, said that this agreement was um, 
shameful and would assure that Iran would get a nuclear capability. Uh, if you take those as the two polar ends here, um, has there been a bit of overstatement here, Matt? I think there's been, uh, not just in those statements, but in lots of statements on each side, uh, overstatement. I, uh, I've been uh, depressed, uh, disappointed was the word that uh, Nick used by this debate. It seems to me we need to have in the United States an ability to talk about difficult national security issues in a rational way where everybody is keeping facts on the table and not making stuff up. And that's not the kind of debate that we've been having about this deal in the last few weeks. Well, we have a little over half an hour for your questions. There are microphones here and here. There are some in the second row. And if there are any up on the top, I don't see them and couldn't anyway with these lights. <laughs> so if you've got a question and you're sitting up there, please come downstairs um, to one of these other four uh, microphones. Uh, when you get called on, uh, please tell us who you are, uh, what your affiliation is here at Harvard or elsewhere. And please make your question short and crisp and actually have a question mark at the end of it. <laughs> we'll start with you. Hi, Dominique Russo, Harvard Kennedy School MCMPA candidate. A quick question. I know this is about for or against for the deal itself. Um, but I think if you're speaking to some Saudis about this, even though they've expressed support for the deal, they'd probably talk about the expectation of the revolution. So I wanted to ask you about that and see what kind of effect you think that will have on Iranian adherence to the deal itself. Nick, it's probably so a good the, one to start with you. The question, you said the Saudis. The Saudis. Right. Yeah. I, I was talking about the idea that they would mention the export of the revolution as a basis for not really being able to trust Iran's adherence to the deal. Right. And this deal has, uh, thank you for the question, this deal has united countries that had never talked to each other. Israel <laughs> has a better set of relations now with Egypt and Jordan and all the Gulf states than it's ever had because they now have a declared common adversary, and that's the Iranian government. And I think the Iranians have really overplayed their hand here. At a time when they're they've been negotiating, really over the last 10 years, with the Bush and Obama administrations, but with Secretary Kerry the last two at, in Vienna, this historic nuclear deal, they have expanded their military support and activities um, against um, all the Gulf states and against some of the moderate Arab states that have been um, destabilized by the Arab revolutions over the last four and a half years. And so the Saudis and the Emiratis and the Kuwaitis and the Bahrainis and the Omanis, as well as the Israelis, have their guard up. And if the Iranians persist, and this is the other half of the Iranian government, the Revolutionary Guard, with these activities, there's going to be a major pushback. I think the problem we have in looking at Iran right now, I know there are a lot of people who support the deal, who hope this might lead to some kind of renaissance in the U.S.-Iranian uh, relationship. I don't really see it coming because we're facing an Iran that is pushing up against all of our friends in the Middle East. And um, we're, Secretary Kerry negotiated with a Western-educated edu university, Denver PhD, Javad Zarif, whose English is as good as any of ours, and who presents a very gentle, very reformist face of the regime. But the heart of that regime is a paranoid supreme leader who hates the United States, who's never traveled to this country, who supports the Revolutionary Guard. As long as he gives them power, and they have the real power in Iran, I think you're going to expect 
a major confrontation between the moderate Arabs, the Sunni Arab countries, mm -hmm. and Iran, and the United States is going to back the Sunni Arabs. And, and it's going to back, of course, the government of Israel and, as and well. Nick, does the Supreme Leader need to pay off the Revolutionary Guard in some way for what they're giving up here, their nuclear program? If so, what do you think he offers them? I don't think we have perfect knowledge about the inner workings of the regime. But <laughs> what we know is that there is a significant opposition within the hardline elements of the regime to the nuclear deal. And, so I th and, and the Supreme Leader has been uh, contradictory in his public statements both at the end game of the negotiations and since. He wants to have it both ways. Mm -hmm. If this deal turns south, or if, um, if we try to implement it in the tough-minded way that I think the three of us have been talking about, he's reserving the right, I think, not just not to maybe to walk away from the deal, but to make it difficult for us to implement it. And so um, the wild card here is, will he, the Ali Hamani, the Supreme Leader, be consistent in convincing his government to adhere to all aspects of the deal. That gets back to the point that we need to enforce this in a very vigorous way. Okay, over okay. here. Could I just, uh, one sure. brief comment on that? I find it very interesting that for a deal that's supposed to bring a modicum of stability to the Middle East, the administration feels the need to compensate for it by multiple billion dollar arms sales. Clearly it's shaken somebody. My name is Cameron Consarini. I'm a student at the college. Uh, I think as an Iranian American, I think also mainly as an American, the issue of human rights uh, is a particularly important one, um, and obviously in this issue, um, and in our relations with other countries as well. And Professor Burns, particularly, you mentioned the need for a more comprehensive Middle East policy. Um, do you, Professor Burns, and, and the rest of the panel, see uh, the need to push Iran on its human rights violations and, and what many would you know, consider crimes against humanity and crimes against religious minorities, women, uh, people of all types? Do, th do you see that as a more comprehensive policy uh, towards Iran? I think it's a big part of it. And you know, there have been some people saying that we should take it easy on the Iranians. This gets to how we negotiate. We study this at the Kennedy School. Take it easy because we need them to complete the deal. I had the opposite view that sometimes the tougher you are, the more unyielding you are, the more effective a negotiator you are because you establish limits. And so we need to be very uh, um, effective in convincing the Iranians that there'll be no business as usual as long as they're holding five American citizens hostage or unjustly imprisoned uh, inside, including Jason Rezian, the Washington Post reporter inside Iran. We also need to pay attention to the fact that they are a major violator of the human rights of their own people. And in supporting some of these nefarious governments like the Assad regime in Syria, they're directly contributing to the 11 million homeless people in Syria itself. I think that Secretary Kerry and David covered this, was it, had to face a, a tough tactical question a year and a half ago that we've been talking about in our classrooms at the Kennedy School for a long time. Should the United States and the other P5 uh, countries have agreed just to negotiate on the nuclear deal or should we have put all issues on the table? I actually think from a negotiating standpoint, it probably uh, strengthened our hand at the table that we only had the nuclear deal there. If we had put everything else on the table, the imprisonment of Americans, religious and human rights in Iran, Iranian activities in Syria, I think it actually might have given the Iranians a little bit more force at the table because they would have triangulated and they would have tried to trade one issue for another. So I think that Secretary Kerry was correct. But what that means is now that we've negotiated it and once the deal goes into place, 
We've got to get to the agenda that you're talking about and not be embarrassed to do it and not hold back. I would say that uh, if you look within Iran, the people who are pushing for human rights the hardest mostly support this deal uh, because they see it as a way of opening their country to the rest of the world in a, to a greater degree. Um, so uh, I think that's important. And I actually think, while I support a lot of what Nick is saying about our need to be tough-minded, at the same time, I think there are areas where we have overlapping interests with Iran. And we should at least explore whether we can pursue some of those areas now that we have this deal on the nuclear front. I mean, you know, they have huge heroin traffic coming out of Afghanistan. They're concerned about that. We're concerned about that. Both of us would like to avoid uh, an inadvertent incident at sea in the Strait of Hormuz. I think an incidents at sea type agreement similar to what we had with the Soviet Union would be very much worth pursuing. Both of us are fighting the Islamic State. Uh, both of us disagree with the way the other side is fighting the Islamic State. Uh, but uh, both of us uh, would like to see a stable Afghanistan that's not ruled by the Taliban, a stable Iraq that's not ruled by the Islamic State. So there, there are areas where it's at least conceivable that we may be able to work together. And if we manage to work together in a broader set of areas, that may undermine their belief that we're trying to undermine the very existence of the Islamic Republic, which then undermines their willingness to compromise with us on areas that matter to us. Hi, my name is Sam. I'm a grad student here at Harvard and also Iranian-American. Cameron as well, but I sort of disagree with the point you brought up. Anyway, <laughs> um, I, I just came back from Iran and also want to preface my talk with the fact that almost everyone from the intellectuals to middle class to lower class, everyone I talk to is for the deal and there's huge expectation from the Iranian people that this deal is going to bring about positive change. So I'm not too worried about that money going to the Revolutionary Guards because the weight of expectation is really huge. But I want to ask something else. All of you sort of agreed that for the first 15 years, this deal does a relatively good job. Some of you more so, some of you less so. Within this 15 years, a lot of these very hardline people are going to age. A lot of them are already very old. And a lot of things are going to change in Iran. And there is this opportunity for the United States to change its dynamics with Iran to an extent that it's not taken basically hostage by the Saudi and Israel. Whatever they want to do in the region, US has to align with them at the moment. So U.S. can actually move to this position to do more stuff with more countries. My question is why continue the policies that you are suggesting, Professor Burns, to tighten the, have a, st a tougher stance on Iran and not try to incorporate them into a more stable um, Middle East in which Iran can work with the U.S., Saudi can work with Iran, and possibly in the longer future, Israel and Iran don't actively uh, try to fight with each other. Basically, this 15-year period, why not use it as an opportunity to do that instead of using the tough iron fist and try to make Iran behave, which hasn't worked very well in the past 20 years, maybe. Well, thank you. I think it's a real good question. Um, it's obviously in the mind of Secretary Kerry, President Obama, and the other Western leaders. Look, my view is this. Um, we, haven't, we had not had a sustained strategic discussion with the Iranians for 35 years. Completely abnormal. The country you should want to talk to routinely is your greatest adversary. It makes no sense to me to wall people off and say, well, I'm a former diplomat. 
and, and we won't yeah. talk to you. So I am very pleased that a very fine diplomat, John Kerry, is going to have the opportunity to challenge Javed Zarif and um, the other leaders in Iran to a different type of Iran as an actor in the Middle East. And I think that we should take the opportunity, as Matt says, to see if there's common ground. And I agree with Matt's list. Matt has the right list. But at the same time, we cannot be naive about the regime in Tehran. They have cheated in the past. They are the largest funder of terrorism in the Middle East by a mile. And so we've got to challenge them to stop that behavior. If we see the behavior stopping, by all means, we should engage with them. And I, I would think that Secretary Kerry and others would want to put this agenda, positive and neg negative, in front of the Iranians and challenge them. But until we see a change, our obligations to our Arab partners, to the human beings being subjugated by the Assad regime, to the Israelis, and to our own national interests are such that we cannot lower our guard until we see the Iranians changing their behavior. And frankly, they're the problem in the Middle East, not the United States. So I would take it from that perspective. I agree with that, but. but uh, <laughs> it's okay. Well, you, so came out of an, you came out of an administration whose view was crush the regime and make it change first, and then deal with them the way he's described. If you listened at least to former Vice President Cheney and some others, in, particularly in the first term, I think that view sort of moderated in the second term, uh, when, when Nick and uh, Secretary Rice uh, were in office. The question was essentially, you've got a group of hardliners who are very old and aren't going to live for very long. So do you see a, a value in having an opening now? Well, I, I, first, I think you overstayed a little bit the Bush administration's ambition. Nick was a part of negotiations. <laughs> even during the, the Bush administration. Um, the, uh, and we supported, in fact, the EU3's initial steps in that regard. I, I, I guess I would align myself with Nick's comments. It seems to me that um, we've been told for decades that the Iranian people love the West as much as their government hates it. Um, and we can just wait another few years, but there seems to be a large cupboard full of extremist leaders <laughs> waiting to take the place of the elderly statesmen. Question over here. Good afternoon, gentlemen. I'm Justin Reynolds, um, Harvard uh, Kennedy School, mid-career candidate as well. Uh, my question is, if Iran is found to cheat, um, Professor Burns, you talked about uh, the expectation that the next uh, president will have a some sort of security apparatus or a or larger, uh, perhaps if, we, if we're lucky, have a, um, some sort of a, a consequence to that action. Let's say that does happen. Let's say that they are found to cheat, as we've all agreed is, is somewhat likely. Um, and let's say they pass some threshold that we, that's uh, been dis, uh, described that requires military action. Um, if that happens, is there any going back? And is, what is the Iranian response to that? Uh, does, that, does that start a larger war in the Middle East? Does that spark, um, sort of put a conventional spin on some of the, uh, the Sunni-Shia issues that are already, uh, already there? Matt, you and I have sat through a lot of scenario-based events Indeed. where... Probably it, everybody on this panel. Yeah, and, and uh, in, in each of these, you know, the Israelis, for example, strike, and then the U.S. gets sucked in, or others do, or the Saudis have to act. 
So what's your, what's your assessment? So first of all, I think there's, uh, we need to be clear about different kinds of cheating. There's lots of sort of low level playing at the margins that I think Nick is right, we need to have responses to, but wouldn't plausibly call military action into play. Right. I personally think that if we found that the Iranians had built a major covert facility and, and were enriching uranium at that facility to try to make bomb material, that we would take military action. Uh, and uh, I think we would be justified in doing so. Um, and I think the Iranians understand that a, a really big violation of this deal would not be a good idea. But I think Nick's right that we ought to continue to make that clear uh, uh, and keep those capabilities uh, live, uh, because I think that is a possibility. I do think the more likely thing is the small cheating at the margins trying to sort of the salami tactics that sort of erode the regime and are actually more difficult to respond to because it's not so obvious. Um, I do think that military strikes would carry enormous risks. Uh, Iran would, I think, feel compelled to respond in some way, whether it's terrorism, whether it's missiles, whether it's the Strait of Hormuz, uh, whether it's in Iraq. Uh, there's all sorts of ways uh, that Iran could hurt us or could hurt Israel or our other allies. Uh, in the Middle East. Um, so I think it's a very dangerous path to get on. And I agree with Nick that uh, it's, a, in my view, one of the reasons I support this deal is it allows us to freeze and partly roll back the Iranian nuclear effort for a substantial period of time without using military force. Um, but we need to remain able to use military force. And we need to keep doing those exercises that David talks about to play out well, okay, if they did this, then what should we be prepared to do in response? We need to have not just the first move of the chess game, but the second, third, and fourth moves of the chess game worked out uh, ahead of time uh, in case that were to happen. And that actually reduces the chance that it will happen if the Iranians know that we have those preparations in play. Nick, do you? I would just say briefly, I think the probability that we'll face this kind of situation in the next few years is probably quite low. There's enough in this deal for the Iranians that they're invested in it and they're going to see that uh, the sanctions relief is profoundly important to their people and to rebuilding their economy and rebuilding some hope in Iran. It's not a government that's impervious to public opinion, although it's sometimes quite brutal with their own public. And I'd also say, um, I think that most of us, certainly speaking for myself, you know, the use of force would only be in exceptional circumstances only when there's no hope in a diplomatic process, or that Iran is driving very clearly and very quickly towards a nuclear weapon. And I think the Iranians would be foolish. They're too smart to do that. I frankly did not agree with President Obama's speech at the American University. The big speech, uh, when he tried to lay, make the case for this in August, I thought he overplayed his hand by saying that the logical, that if this deal is rejected, we'll have war. I didn't think so at all. I thought if this deal fell apart, the Iranians would go back to a civil nuclear program. They would try to increase their capacity, but they're very smart. They know where the American red line is, and they've never crossed it because we've been credible enough in the threat of force. And so I'm very hopeful that diplomacy is going to prevail here. But it depends on the United States being really good and focused on the implementation phase over 15 to 20 years. That's three presidents. Hello, my name is Danielle Karam. Um, I was hoping you could comment 
on the limitations of the deal's ability to diffuse regional tensions, absent Israel's willingness to sign the non-proliferation treaty, and maybe more specifically about the United States' attempts, uh, most recently in May, to block efforts to make the Middle East a nuclear weapons-free zone. Let's start with Will on this one. Will, you've been through this diplomatic dance that's gone on in the nuclear world many times, in which the United States doesn't press Israel to sign the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. There are only three countries that haven't, Israel, Pakistan, and India, and North Korea, I guess, was a member and we sent in their out. resignation, yes. And uh, South Sudan hasn't gotten around to it yet. They have right. a few other things on their uh, mind. They, but it's gonna be a while before we're worried about South Sudan's uh, nuclear capability. Um, I hope. Uh, so, how does one, how does one deal with both the question that was raised is very good, and an Israel that will neither acknowledge nor deny its own nuclear capability here? Well, I think, you know, frankly, the, as a practical matter, it, may, it would probably be a good thing for the world if the Middle East were a nuclear weapons-free zone. Um, but the tangle of interests there is so complicated, and there are such overlapping concerns. I mean, for example, and maybe to some extent this problem has been resolved by other means, but Syria's chemical weapons capability was always advertised as a concern that might uh, motivate a country to heighten its own deterrent capability. And so then you've got overlapping chemical and nuclear concerns. Um, the, the Egyptian, Israeli, Saudi, Turkish, um, and Iranian uh, interests do not perfectly align. And so I think that this, while it may be a good idea, it's just such a complicated issue that it's unlikely ever to be unsnarled. So I, I, I would say it's not correct to say the United States is against a Middle East uh, weapons of mass destruction free zone. It is true that the particular proposal put forward in May at the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty Review Conference was unacceptable to uh, the US, partly because it basically said you know, the Arab states could hold a meeting without uh, Israel agreeing uh, uh, to the terms of the uh, discussion and the arrangement. Um, so uh, I think, frankly, that um, realistically, not only in the Middle East, but globally, uh, there isn't any army that's going to take away the nuclear weapons from the states that have them already. We will only achieve nuclear disarmament when the states that have nuclear weapons conclude they'd be better off without them. Uh, none of the states that have nuclear weapons believe that today. I don't believe it's impossible that over the next 50 to 100 years we will manage to get to that uh, state, depending exactly on uh, what you mean by zero. Uh, I've actually been thinking of an artic article called What Do We Mean by Zero? Uh, uh, but um, I personally have been mystified by uh, because the Egyptian leaders who are pushing this proposal are smart people and they know Israel isn't going to get rid of its nuclear weapons anytime soon. So exactly uh, what they're seeking uh, realistically in the near term has been a little bit of a mystery to me. Um, uh, so I, I agree with Will. We're not going to have a Middle East free of nuclear weapons in the near term, maybe in the very long term. 
By my count, we have about 10 minutes left, and we have about 10 people uh, up here with questions. So we're going to ask for short questions and short answers. Okay, we'll start with you. Okay, hi. My name is Ayman Mohammed. I'm a freshman at the college and an IOP hopeful. Um, so I think a lot of the questions earlier have touched on the possibility of Iran cheating and the repercussions of that. And I think an important provision of the accord is the ability to reinstate the embargo and the so-called snapback sanctions. However, once the market potential of Iran is unleashed with this surplus of oil, do you think that these uh, snapback sanctions are feasible given like the new markets that will be introduced once the embargo is lifted? Nick, why don't you take that? Will, will, will anybody really want to go do the snapback? It will depend on the nature and dimensions of the Iranian, the possible Iranian violation. If it's quite small, very difficult to convince the French to give up their commercial opportunities that they're already pursuing, and certainly the Chinese, who are all about energy. Uh, and so if there's a major violation, then I think the U.S. could carry the day. Uh, the claim by the administration that snapback sanctions will be easy, I think it's exaggerated. It's right worse, I would say, even than you described. There is an enormous loophole on the snapback sanctions, whereby um, contracts that are negotiated before the violation is declared are grandfathered. And so Iran is, today, busy negotiating 30-year contracts. So all of those contracts will remain in place, even if a violation is detected. I, I would say that the most critical <laughs> sanctions are the EU and US uh, sanctions more than the UN uh, sanctions, although the UN sanctions provide the political cover for EU action uh, and others. And there's a lot that can be done on SWIFT and the oil sanctions and so on. We're not doing so well on our 10 minutes, 10 people, so we're going <laughs> to... Sorry. <laughs> I'm Allie Wiener. I'm an MPA1 at the Kennedy School. You mentioned Syria a number of times, and curious what you make of the hope by some that this deal will open up the possibility of returning to Geneva talks or to a negotiated political solution in Syria. Nick, this is right in your bailiwick. I think, and this is a, well, I'll try to be very brief. It's a complicated subject. I think Secretary <laughs> Kerry is very much hoping that there'll be a uh, political process that will be created that will have as its vision end the war. It may take years to get there, but you've got to establish the vision. Two problems in the last week. Uh, the Russians are now accelerating their military resupply of the Assad government. You saw those photographs of the Russian vessels in the Mediterranean over the weekend. And secondly, the Iranians have doubled down uh, on, the, uh, on their support for Assad as well over the last three or four days. If anything is going to happen in the diplomatic process, we have to see Iran and Russia buy in, and right now they're not. I think they are directly complicit in the further deterioration, the fact that you have three or 4,000 refugees arriving in the Greek islands every day. You've seen what's happening in Hungary and Germany. They're complicit in that. And so they're the two capitals, Tehran and Moscow, that have to move because Washington and Europe and the Arab capitals are ready for new political talks. Gentleman up here has recognized that there was an empty microphone. So <laughs> your entrepreneurship ADA. is rewarded. Thank you. So um, the question is uh, so related to um, minor infractions. So um, a couple of you have discussed the difficulties involved in minor infractions of the agreement. And I was wondering if you foresee there being really a coherent response to those emerging, whether it's within the US alone or the, the broader coalition of opponents, uh, opponents but the, you know, the P5 plus one, what have you. So, um, and what you'd see as, uh, I guess, the difficulties in implementing a response to 
to minor infractions. Will? So uh, Nick, who worked for the State Department, quoted an energy secretary. I work for the Energy Department, and I'm going to quote two former secretaries of state. They talked about how difficult it'd be to implement this. These are George Schultz and Henry Kissinger. Compounding the difficulty is the unlikelihood that breakout will be a clear-cut event. More likely, it will occur, if it does, via a gradual accumulation of ambiguous evasions. And I think that's very much the, the likely scenario. And it makes it important to take the action that Nick and, and I think Matt uh, both urge to be tough on even small things. You know, just as a historical note on this, uh, President Obama uh, revealed, as Nick mentioned earlier, a facility called Fordo. It's outside the city of Goom. Uh, when we first got the story before the announcement of this, we thought it would be a huge piece of news that would change the diplomatic landscape. And we broke it, the president made his announcement. And in fact, it took months for Secretary Clinton to be able to sort of turn around and get people ginned up about that. And that wasn't a small breach, that was a very Major. big, that was a big, one. big discovery, yeah. right here. Kelly Scholl, a finalist at Oxford. And this is, I admit, mostly aimed at Nick. You've repeatedly referred to Saudi Arabia, among other Sunni states, as being moderate. It's not obvious that Saudi Arabia is significantly more moderate in a religious sense than in Iran. What do you mean by moderate other than simply U.S. ally historically? Um, what I mean to refer to Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, Kuwait, Jordan, Egypt, countries that have been aligned with moderate foreign policies in the region, uh, certainly in the last 40 years, not to destroy Israel and, they, and to actually have some cooperative activities that they don't talk about uh, with Israel. Countries that stand for stability in the Middle East, not chaos and mass terrorism. Countries that you know, are aligned with Europe, with the other Arab countries, and with the US. That's what I mean. Not about their domestic behavior. Because certainly, if you look at the condition of women's rights, human rights in Saudi Arabia, it's lamentable. But we, of course, in the United States have had a history in the Middle East of supporting some of these conservative regimes while we disagree with their domestic policies because, for instance, with the Saudis, critical for energy, critical in the containment of Iran, and critical for supporting some of the weaker Sunni states financially, Jordan and Egypt are two examples of that. So all American presidents since Franklin Roosevelt have seen them as a moderate government in their foreign policies and regional policies. Question up here. Hi, my name is Jair Weinberg. I'm a student at Harvard Business School. Um, my question is, wait, before the question, Israel has a very strong democracy. Uh, they have a lot of political parties. There's a lot of debate within the Israeli politics. The one topic that they agree on, the Jew like the, all the Jewish parties, is they do not want this deal. They think this is a terrible deal, and they want to look for a better one. In the U.S., what happens if we do a miscalculation here? Iran always talks about wiping Israel off the map. What if, if there is a miscalculation? Iran actually achieves a nuclear weapon and they detonate it in Israel. Always a risk. We discussed risk before, but Matt, what do you think? So I think the net risk to Israel of that scenario is much lower with this deal than without it. Without this deal, Iran would be free to test the advanced centrifuges that then make it much easier to build a covert facility and keep it hidden. Uh, they'd be free to build up their stocks of enriched uranium, build up their stocks of centrifuges uh, operating. Um, 
And my guess is that the if it was the United States <laughs> that was walking away from the deal, um, the sanctions regime, much of it would unravel. So the Iranians would get much of the sanctions relief uh, without having to comply with all of the uh, terms of the deal. Uh, but I do think it's a very serious problem that the national security communities of Israel and the United States have diverged in such a public and fierce way. Uh, and I think some of Nick's ideas about how to mend the relationship makes sense. I would point out that there are a substantial number of the security barons in Israel, uh, especially the recently retired ones, uh, who actually do support this uh, agreement. Amos Yadlin, who um, was the, uh, one of the guys who flew some of the airplanes that destroyed the Iraqi reactor, planned the destruction of the Syrian reactor, was in charge of planning for attacks on uh, Israel's, on Iran's nuclear facilities, uh, has said that he supports this deal and thinks that it reduces in the net uh, the risk of an Iranian bomb. Okay, we have time for just two more questions. Take Thank right you. Um, Katarina Lutz, I'm a grad PhD student, undergraduate student in Geneva and uh, fellow with the Weather Hat Center and Business School here this year. Um, so none of that's my area of expertise. Um, just a brief question. You see, that the deal might be approved, possibly approved by a minority um, um, vote. Would there, if you were to elect a Republican president next year, um, this is such a politicized issue, would there be any possibility of walking away from the deal? Or do you think that international pressure be too, too strong to, um, to do that? It's a superb question, because if you have something that is only an executive agreement, not a treaty, that means the next executive isn't any more bound to it than, than an executive who uh, you know, signs a piece of, of a domestic order, except for the tradition that future presidents, in fact, enforce the deals their predecessors reached. Eh? I think it'll be extremely difficult in the event of a Republican uh, being elected in 2016 for that person to walk away from this deal because our best friends in the world, Britain, France, and Germany, are co-authors of this deal. And assuming, for the purposes of this discussion, that the deal is being implemented by the Iranians, that there have been no fundamental violations, why would they work, walk away from the deal? Why would the Russians and Chinese? Why would the Indians, South Koreans, and Japanese agree to suspend oil shipments or diminish them the way they have the last uh, two years? So the American president is not gonna have a lot of running room to do that. You'd break a lot of China, in the international system. And I think it would be foolhardy as well because we would simply strengthen Iran and weaken the United States in this long-term struggle that we are in with Iran. So you get the last question of the evening. My name is Arash, uh, visiting fellow at Harvard and a research assistant at Princeton Iran Data Portal. My question is for Professor Burns, that if you were the advisor of Iran's supreme leader, uh, what would you suggest to him about the deal, considering that he wants to secure his power in domestic politics and foster Iran's power in the region? Nick, I think I it was directed at you, but we'll give everybody a shot. Well, I've never given any advice to the Supreme Leader ever before, so this is a first. <laughs> <laughs> um, Has he ever asked for it? He's any? never asked. <laughs> um, part of the problem that we've had diplomatically is I don't believe he's traveled anywhere in the world uh, in 20, 25 years. He knows very few foreign leaders. 
There was a time in 2006, I think, when President Putin went on behalf of the entire Perm 5 to talk to him, and it was not a very pleasant meeting. And so uh, he's really quite isolated in the international system. There's a lot of pressure on him as to whether or not he'll keep the Iranian government focused on implementing not just the spirit of this agreement, but every letter of it. And so far be it for me to give advice to him, but I'd just say if Iran breaks the agreement or tries to cut corners, which has been the Iranian practice government in the past, uh, he'll have a major problem with whoever we elect in 2016, uh, as well as President Obama before that. So the Iranians need to know, I think the government, just how isolated they are right now in the international system. I'm very pleased about this agreement. I'd much rather see this uh, resolved by diplomacy rather than the use of force, but it's a very thin edge there. And I, I hope the Iranian government understands how fortunate they are to have arrived at this situation because I think it's a good one for Iran. I just don't know if the Supreme Leader has the um, pers historical perspective, given the fact he doesn't talk to anybody internationally to recognize that. Will? Well, I worry that it's already unraveling. As I mentioned, uh, the foreign minister, defense minister, and two senior advisors to the Supreme Leader have said that military inspections of military sites are off limits. Um, so it puzzles me that, that we, it already seems to be falling apart. I fear we're in a situation where Iran is pretending, albeit not very well, to comply, and we're pretending to believe them. So uh, I'll actually offer advice since my colleagues, uh, I would say accept this agreement and comply with it. It's Iran's best option. Uh, it opens your economy to uh, trade with the rest of the world in a way that hasn't been possible in recent years. Um, but I do think that in the longer term that may lead to change that the Supreme Leader isn't ready for. Um, and I hope that it leads to change. I think the process of interaction and trade, um, it doesn't, you know, uh, the idea that, you know, our trade with China was going to lead to democracy in China was never correct. But I do think it makes it more difficult for uh, dictators to keep power when their people really have a good understanding of what's going on in the rest of the world. Well, I thank all of you, and I think if anything has come out of this conversation, it may be this, that there's a temptation when you hear about a deal like this and a vote like this to think that the vote is sort of the end of the story, that, we're, that we have um, uh, come to the end of what's been really a more than 10-year confrontation with Iran on this. What we're really at is the end of a relatively early chapter in this, of which you have to think of this agreement the way you would have thought about the early days of the first arms control agreements with the Soviets, or the early days of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty when we didn't know whether countries would sign on or not. And this is all the more complex by the fact that we don't know whether this is a one-off or the first step in a much broader opening of a relationship with the Iranians. And we may not know that until a generational change has taken place in the Iranian leadership as some of the questioners have raised up. So I thank you, uh, Will, Matt, and Nick. I thank all of you for your superb questions and hope you come back. I know that Wendy Sherman, who was the um, 
chief negotiator within the State Department working for Secretary Kerry, is coming up here as an Institute of Politics fellow, and there will be in early October a forum event with Wendy where you'll have a chance to ask her about how she negotiated this deal. So I thank you very much and appreciate all of you coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.